McAfee is the device to cloud cybersecurity company and trusted partner for federal government agencies, state and local governments, and education providers. Inspired by the power of working together, McAfee creates solutions that make our world a safer place. By building solutions that work with other companies' products, McAfee helps public sector entities orchestrate cyber environments that are truly integrated, where protection, detection, and correction of threats happen simultaneously and collaboratively. For more information, visit McAfee.com slash public sector. Welcome to Securiosity for March 29th. I am Greg Otto. And I'm Jen O'Daniel, ready to recap a week's worth of InfoSec news. A high-profile hacker trial is coming to a close, an actual supply chain hack was unearthed, and another dark web marketplace is down for the count. In our interview, we talk with Aviv Graffi, CEO of Tidro. Aviv talks about how his company came to be and why fileless malware is so hard for additional AV to find. No movie trailer talk this week, but plenty to hit as it's been another busy week in the InfoSec universe. Let's get to it. Former NSA contractor Harold T. Martin III has pleaded guilty in connection with perhaps the largest theft of government secrets in U.S. history. The plea deal recommends nine years in prison plus three years of supervised release. Investigators found over the course of the case that Martin had removed a staggering amount of sensitive material, including documents, removable media, and computer files about internal NSA policy and cyber operations from various classified environments. More than 50 terabytes of material, some marked top secret, were covered. Think this closes the chapter of NSA leakers? Uh, I would say that this chapter a little bit, but I mean, there is still a little bit that's like undefined or unfounded because this is a case that has been connected to the shadow brokers leaks. Now, that is to say that, you know, the U.S. government never found any direct links to the shadow brokers connecting Harold Martin to that group. However, if you remember, there was that big Politico magazine story earlier in January that found that a, a Twitter account tied to Hal Martin was connected to some Kaspersky researchers, and he talked about wanting to talk to Eugene Kaspersky and handing over some material. Um, th- so that was shady in its own right and became the closest link to what we now know as the shadow brokers. However, with Martin pleading guilty yesterday, he didn't plead guilty to like any like espionage thing. And again, the government never said how Martin is responsible for the shadow brokers. Um, What he pled guilty to was one count of willful retention of classified documents, which was something that was talked about going back as far as January 2018. So I'm really, really interested to know why it took so long to get to this point when we had talked about it for 18 months almost. So it closes Hal Martin's chapter. I mean, he's going to be sentenced in July and that's that. But I mean, there's still a lot we don't know about the shadow brokers and I'm not sure we ever will. How does 50 terabytes only one count of willful whatever you said it was? Right. So it's funny that you say that. And I I had thought about that as we were uh, reporting out this story this week. Um, you know, it goes in line with what the government was comfortable charging him with. And I say comfortable in that maybe the government didn't have all the information that they needed to send to the trial. Maybe by sending it to trial, they could have exposed, you know, a lot of what was going wrong inside the NSA as far as keeping classified information classified. Because remember, This was in 2016 when these leaks happened and Martin was uh, a Booz Allen contractor at this point. So Snowden was still pretty fresh. So you're talking about data retention and data protection inside the NSA at a time when it was supposed to be like one of the top level priorities. And you go, let's say you go through trial on this. That means there's discovery and Does the government really want there to be discovery into the NSA's data retention practices at a time when, you know, again, it was supposed to be at the height of their concentration and it was a top level thing. And then they found out that they didn't really do anything in the wake of Snowden. That's that's could be potentially very embarrassing for the government. I'm not saying that that is what was going to be discovered. But, hey, at the same time, we were talking. I mean, let's go back over the list. Snowden. 
Harold Martin, the other contractor, Foe, right. the guy that was uh, sentenced uh, last year, How many and years reality he winner. I believe that he got around, I think it was 66 months he got. Okay. So. Yeah. So around five years. So similar to what uh, Harold Martin is facing here, because they are going to give him time served. He's been in custody since they arrested him in 2016. So at the maximum, he could get is another six years on top of that. So it seems like that they are, you know, setting a precedent with what goes on as far as willful retention. You know, I can't help but think that if I'm a employee of a security agency and I'm maybe not the most honorable person. I'm definitely not the most honorable person. And I decide that I'm going to sell that information that I'm collecting that 50 terabytes or whatever. Getting nine years in prison doesn't, I mean, not that this person sold the secrets or whatever, but nine years in prison, yeah, a couple I mean, million dollars, right. it no, might be worth it, a couple it, million so, dollars. So it, and th- there's the fine line that you talk about. I, the government either did not have evidence, couldn't prove the evidence, or he just didn't do, right. uh, he just didn't do that. He didn't do anything with that information. Despite those those uh, Twitter messages, that looks to be the only public evidence that we've seen that he had any real intent to try to profit off the material he took. But again, these charges are just about the fact that he took it home. There's no... I would imagine that if he tried to sell it, they would slap him with an espionage charge. And we've seen this in in some other cases, particularly the cases tied to China. Um, We just did a a story this week uh, as well about how uh, China and their intelligence services basically use LinkedIn as a white page uh, directory for X uh, U.S. intelligence, yeah. but those, but we've we've seen those cases charged, and right. those those guys have been charged with espionage because they took secrets, went to China, and tried to sell them. Right. Uh, so we we we've seen that the government, if, if you try to sell it, the government will come after you with espionage charges and throw the book at you for for what you did. There's just not that evidence that this is what happened in Harold Martin's case. So all they could, uh, I I think that prosecutors, especially with these NSA data leaks, are trying to get some type of conviction or sentence to send some, some kind of message that, look, even if you just do this by mistake, you're going to serve some jail time. Yeah. I mean, we could, we could have another, this, we could talk about this for another 90 minutes. I I, I feel like. I've got a a hard stance on, on, and what I think about things like this. No, and well, yes, obviously if you're, if you're some type of, uh, if you were in the intelligence community and you're selling secrets to foreign governments, that's espionage. That's, that's awful. And you should go to jail for a long time. I just don't understand how, it's a mistake and I don't have an intent to do something if I take 50 terabytes or the data home that I'm not supposed to be taking. I just don't see how maybe they caught him too soon before I, he had the intent. I just can't imagine I bet there not. are some government lawyers that have had that thought racing through their heads since they're this, they've oh, been sure. assigned to this case. But um, it's one thing to have those thoughts, but then it's another thing to prove it. So I think that they were trying to get what they could as far as the sentencing is concerned. Yeah. And sort of just – there was a very interesting quote. Uh, if you go and read our story, um, Martin told the judge when he pled guilty in court that he wanted to close Pandora's box. And I think that that is a good metaphor for all of this because essentially in the cybersecurity world, that's kind of what happened with the shadow brokers. All these tools were dumped, including the Eternal Blue uh, exploit and the Eternal Blue exploit ended up being co-opted into WannaCry. And we saw uh, what happened with WannaCry too. So uh, the the cybersecurity Pandora's box is such a good metaphor for what happened with the shadow brokers that it's funny that he used that metaphor because it's just so spot on. But I think that everybody, including Martin and the government, is ready to sort of like close this chapter and move on. So, Jen, your favorite topic, election security, is back. Senator Amy Klobuchar and three other Democrats are asking some detailed questions of the three companies that provide an overwhelming majority of the voting technology used in the United States. The inquiry goes beyond what the companies and the companies that we're talking about are Hart InterCivic, uh, ES&S, and Dominion Voting Systems. 
The inquiry goes beyond what those companies are doing to shore up their products for the 2020 election. Instead, senators want to hear about their innovation budgets, their commitment to machinery that produces paper records, and a lot of other things. So, Jen, do you think that this will make a difference ahead of 2020? I don't think it makes a difference ahead of 2020, but I think it makes a difference for our future. Um, Senator Warner um, was one of those um, senators asking those questions along with um, the other the others. And, you, you know, if you look at his background, he was formerly a venture capitalist. He's into innovation. He had a strong innovation policy around Virginia while he was governor. Um, so I think this makes complete sense that he would be on this committee, if you will, asking these questions. And I think they are now looking ahead beyond 2020 and making sure that these companies that we're, we've decided to use are going to come out with new products that are better. Yeah. Um, ahead of 2020, I'm not sure that this really makes a difference. I think these questions are pertinent to 2020. But at the same time, I, I, I like the long-term vision here of the questions that are I being asked. Because, look, a, as much as we talk about paper ballots and risk-limiting audits and all of the low-tech measures that need to go into election security – just looking at the way the technology grows, no matter what sector it is, it doesn't go away. Like, we're not going to go back 30, 40 years on this. So these questions need to be asked not just for 2020, but for 2024, 2028, 2040, 2050, and, and yeah, what absolutely. have you. So um, I think this is a, a good start. And I know talking to uh, a bunch of these companies, they haven't been caught flat-footed. Like, going back to what happened at DEF CON, uh, I think, you know, hmm. we've run some of the stories, particularly around ES&S, talking about what they are or are not doing. I think that now that the dust has settled from the midterm elections, uh, these companies have had a chance to reassess and sort of go, okay, w w we're kind of getting creamed here uh, uh, when it comes to the public perception of the safety of our products. What can we do to, you know, change things, make things right, and make things secure again. So I wouldn't be surprised if you start to see these companies sort of come into the public space and say, okay, we heard you, we heard Capitol Hill, here's what we're doing. Yeah, no, very interesting. So on to a story that just, that just pisses me off. So Office Depot will pay $25 million and Support.com $10 million for their role in a year-long scheme to use a software program known as PC Health Check as a tool to convince customers to buy tech support from Office Depot according to the FTC, that it, that fine is just not big enough. Both companies configured PC Health Check to report it had found malware based on whether customers agreed with statements such as, my PC recently became much slower or is too slow to use, rather than true malware scans. The FTC um, said that defendants bilked unsuspecting customers out of tens of millions of dollars from their use of the PC Health Check program to sell costly diagnostics and repair services. Office Depot employees then would repair the computers that appeared to be hacked, claiming to find other problems that cost money to resolve. I'm sorry, but Office Depot has really put themselves in that category of preying um, against senior citizens. I mean, that is typically who falls for this kind of thing. And they also have put themselves in the category of, um, I don't know if you get the, the crank phone call of the company letting you know that your Windows machine has been um, compromised and they want information from you. I mean, I the Office Depot is now a store I'm never shopping in. Right. This, is, mean, this is just, ridiculous. this is fraud. I mean, I, I really don't know any other way to categorize it. I, this, you know, it, it's funny to me that cases like this fall under the jurisdiction of the FTC and not just the Department of Justice. This, this to me, yeah. just sounds like fraud, and they're going to get away with just paying a fine, and that's that, when really this is, it's it's fraud. Like, uh, these, these services, you know, you see them all the time, whether they're part of Office Depot or, like you just said, you get them on a robocall, or it's a late-night commercial where it's like, your computer's slow. It must have viruses. Call this number, and it's just—it is. It, it, it preys on, you know, the the very tech illiterate, yeah, and just bilks money out of them for stuff that they have no idea what's going on. Like, if, this and this is but not just only like that—they just flat out lie about what's wrong with their right, and, and so 
but this then goes back to the bigger problem of consumer security. Like we were talking about a couple of weeks ago, uh, uh, the conversation I had at RSA about just what happens with people that are tech literate and tech savvy when you talk about all the problems that Facebook or Google or the services that people right. use have. And then you get to this level of it where it's like at any level of tech literacy, it's completely impossible to trust the security and understand what is needed and that's just awful for the greater security community it is. when it comes to the when it comes to the tech space i mean how is anybody supposed to really trust what they know or don't know when it comes to security it's it's impossible and schemes like this just they they drive me nuts in the same way that they drive you nuts from the standpoint of it's just money that that's all it is it's just an easy way to bilk money out of people without actually figuring out if they're secure or not. So I go back to what I said. This this goes beyond the FTC to me. This should be Department of Justice stuff, maybe SEC stuff as well. And I mean, the, fines, I should the a, fine should be, there yeah. should at least be another zero tacked on to each of these fines because it, it's just ridiculous. There should be, and this should be a class action lawsuit um, from all of their former customers. So to a little bit of a story we talked uh, uh, about earlier, a string of recent cases demonstrate how suspected Chinese spies are exploiting LinkedIn, the networking site inherently meant to facilitate professional communications. Just look at the cases of Ron Rockwell Hansen, a former DIA officer who pleaded guilty to espionage, or Yang Shan Zhu, who prosecutors say recruited GE aviation employees before he was arrested. The government is obviously aware of the risk, but the real concern is that no one seems to have a plan to stop it. Jen, so think about all the times you've criticized people for the information they put on Facebook. Does that apply to LinkedIn now as well? You know, it's it surprises me a little bit about, um, you know, I, I read the article that your team wrote, um, and it surprised me a little bit that, people are putting data in LinkedIn that is secret. Um, I get that sometimes people put job titles or companies that might suggest that you might know things that are secret, but it, it just seemed, but if you're getting a trip to China to talk about something, I mean, that's yeah. Suspect. I don't, I don't get it. I just don't from, you know, from, an intelligence perspective, if you are, if you're in the CIA, wh whether you're a field officer or all the way up the ranks, yeah. why would you want to put that on LinkedIn? Like, you wouldn't talk about that at, like, a cocktail party. Like, I think about times where I've been out in the D.C. area, in the Beltway area, and you're meeting people, talking to people, whatever, and, you know, you drop, oh, what do you do? And they're like, I work for the government. And you go, oh, well, what do you government's pretty big like well, what are you talking about and they're like no I, like I yeah can't, it, it I can't ends have the that. conversation so yeah. why would you then go around on LinkedIn and say hey uh, I work in the intelligence community I work you know for the CIA I work for the DIA like why would you do that like is it not essentially doing the same thing like plus it can be accessed by a ton more people than the 10 people you might talk to at a bar or a cocktail party well, usually that, or something like that. Yeah. So I, I, I just, the, the, the disconnect there in the operational security is just so mind boggling to me. And it, it's amazing because I think that um, the people on LinkedIn that I would assume would put agencies on their LinkedIn are the public facing people. So it's, I don't, right. as I think about all my friends that work for um, three letter agencies, None of them have LinkedIn profiles, or if that's they good. do, no, that's well, and that is they, a very, very good thing. They don't have what they currently do listed, right? And the, the reason this story came up is uh, sixty Minutes did a story on the Kevin Mallory um, indictment arrest. He was another person that was recruited by Chinese intelligence agencies, and it just jumped out to me in that story that. No, they just found him on LinkedIn. Like this wasn't some grand operational yeah. security thing as far as like, you know, like James Bond spy movie, lots of moving parts to try to co-opt um, U.S. assets. It was, it was a LinkedIn search, like legitimately a LinkedIn search. We have made it so easy to uh, become, you know, assets in, in uh, yeah, but foreign I spy games that it's just it's yeah. mind-blowing and I, I i would 
couch. It's it's not mind blowing because obviously that's what happened. It's the fact that there just seems to be no real way to stop it. And I feel like it would just be one of those things where it's just like, hey, don't do that. Like legitimately have a statute on the books inside the intelligence agencies where it's like, hey, I get that you are proud to work here. Let's keep it off LinkedIn. How about you don't have a LinkedIn profile? Well, that I mean, that should be a policy. I mean, it, for instance, if you're um, an SBIR reviewer for like an, the NSF, um, they have a strict policy that you don't put it on LinkedIn and you don't tweet about it and you don't do um, certain things. So you would think, and that's not classified yeah, data. No, so. think, think about that. Yeah, think about that. A, yeah, a small a business, policy. yeah, a small business. Somebody that works for small business for the NSF has, has been told to have better OPSEC than some people that work <laughs> at high-level intelligence agencies. Mind-blowing. Wonderful. So hackers used a popular Taiwan-based hardware maker to plant backdoors on thousands of computers. The attackers compromised an ASUS server to send malicious updates and affected 1 million computer users between June and November 2018. According to researchers, though only 600 appeared to be targeted for attack. ASUS accounted for 6% of global PC shipments in the third quarter of 2018, according to Gartner. So it's kind of epic for supply chain compromises, yeah? Yeah. Um, long-time listeners to the show know that I, I rail on the Super Micro story and how bogus yeah. that seemed to have been. This is legit. the legit supply chain hack story. This is a tremendously big deal. Even though Asus this week has played it off as, oh, only 600 uh, computers were targeted. It's not that big of a deal. We fixed it. Everything's fine. And everybody sort of carried on with their week, which to me, well, I'm like, All right, th- this is yeah. this is tremendously bad. This is, this is the super micro story come to life. And this is why everybody gets worked up about supply chain, because things like this happen. So what do we know about the 600 computers that were targeted? Were they targeted uh, to any specific people, or was it just these random 600 computers were chosen? I, I don't. I would imagine out of all the computers that are out there that are Asus devices, targeting only 600 means that it wasn't random. I don't know anything about those 600, but to think about all of the computers that are out there that have an ASUS stamp on them or, or that were purchased from ASUS. I mean, it's in the millions. It's in the tens of millions. So you're talking about tens of millions and whittled it down to 600. That's pretty particular. That's that's, that's not random. So there's yeah. – yeah, well, no, absolutely. I mean, the, there was – like the research – this was research from Kaspersky that said about 1 million of these computers could have been – yeah. Um, access, but it looks to have been only 600. When you start to get down to that amount, the probability of it being random is, yeah, is, is very, very low. So this looks to be, you know, the work of a nation state, and they were clearly going after a select group of people. However, you're, uh, I, I don't have an answer to your question. I'm not exactly sure who, but I would imagine that the 600 people, once figuring it out, probably through their ASUS computers out the window or into I'm, the ocean or wherever. I'm, sure I'm, I'm guessing that those computers are no longer active. <laughs> so FEMA exposed sensitive data about 2.3 million disaster survivors in violation of federal privacy law, according to a DHS inspector general report. The negligence leaves survivors of Hurricanes Irma, Harvey, and Maria, as well as victims of the 2017 California wildfires, susceptible to identity fraud and theft. Among the data FEMA sent to a contractor were bank names and transfer numbers of survivors applying for a federal relief program. However, a FEMA spokesperson acknowledged the error and said the agency had taken, quote, aggressive measures to correct it. Jen, is this like the worst breach ever? Or, I mean... I feel like every week we should have a segment where it's like the week's worst breach ever because this one just like topped the charts. <laughs> I kind of feel like I'm just so used to these breaches that I'm just like, eh, it was only 2.3 million people. No big deal. <laughs> At the same time, <laughs> if you are dealing with the aftermath of one of oh. these brutal hurricanes or the brutal wildfires – and you realize that you have, and then you have to add this to you it, have your to load. Add this oh. to it, like 
you're floating out transfer numbers from like finances dealing with a relief program like I mean it's bad. It's uh, bad. like that it's yeah. Um I I I hope that no one actually had their information compromised as far as like ID theft or identity fraud on on top of this cuz that's just awful. So so this is a federal agency that breached data for consumers, if you will. If this was Facebook, they'd get a fine. Does FEMA get a fine? Mm-hmm. I mean, no, they don't because they're part of the, the government. And I don't know, can an agency even pay a I fine no like that? But, I don't, I don't know how those but laws shouldn't these people work. Get... I would imagine that there would probably be depending on how many people get hit with identity fraud and theft. Well, even if it's one person, that's a lawsuit against DHS. That's a lawsuit against the U.S. government. And I wouldn't be surprised if the U.S. government would just be like, okay, we're settling. Like, uh, yeah. we, don't, we, don't, we don't need this. Our bad. Like, here's, here's a check. Go away. And here's some identity theft measures that we can put in place for you, and you will not have to pay for those. So, yeah, that those are lawsuits waiting to happen, God forbid, if – anybody actually had it's, their identity stolen. It's tough for us to demand that um, that companies like a Facebook or, or whoever keeps their data secret when the U.S. government can't. So dark web marketplace Dream Market has been among the busiest drug sites in operation today, specializing in sales of narcotics as well as stolen data. But administrators say the site is going down on April 30th. The news coincides with announcements from the FBI and Europol that have arrested 61 people and shut down 50 dark web accounts as part of an international police operation. While it's not clear if the dream market closure is a direct result of what the FBI calls Operation Saboteur, U.S. police have arrested suspects accused of making dream market to sell methamphetamine and heroin. Greg, how does this affect the Black Hats? Well, have I mean, you ever been on this site? I Yes, I, I've been on Dream Market, I mean, just to poke around, because of all the other marketplaces that have tumbled over the past, like, 12 yeah. or 18 months. Alphabet comes to mind. I mean, there's been a bunch of others that have been shut down. So just poking around and seeing what's on these sites. But it affects the Black Hats because, I mean, outside of the drugs – there's also stolen data and credit card data and exploits that are sold on these sites. So, um, yeah, I mean, this is the whack-a-mole stuff that law yeah. enforcement does when it comes to dark web marketplaces. And, uh, I, I mean, I don't think you're going to see any other markets rise to prominence because this is now the third or fourth market that's been completely knocked off line. Well, we had someone on our show recently that talked about how like WhatsApp is now the thing to buy like guns. Right. Yeah. Right. So and a a lot of that is just all due to uh, I'm going to go down a rabbit hole here. So a lot of the the WhatsApp and uh, Signal and and that's all encrypted communications. So obviously they're realizing that the dark web, you can still be found on the dark web Mm -hmm. no matter what. And if you turn to the encryption, I mean, yeah, you're you're communications should be safe from having anybody try to intercept them. However, that doesn't mean like if you're still doing that stuff and law enforcement suspects you of that, that a warrant can't be issued to search your phone or something like that. Um, But no, uh, I I think that you're going to start to see marketplaces that do this type of stuff on the dark web just move away because they're targets. And... uh, Law enforcement has a very, very good way of monitoring these forums, and they have their own people watching it. They have their own criminal informants. So I wouldn't be surprised if you don't see any of these markets really pop up anymore. Like you're going to see maybe some smaller, I guess you would might say boutique stuff happen, but you're not going to see anything like the Silk Roads or the Alpha Bays of yesteryear just throwing out. Uh, oxys and fentanyl and yeah. all, all the other wild stuff that we've seen advertised on these markets. I think that that is um, gone. So what do you think that says about all of the, I can't remember what credit card it is, but now included with their services, they do a check of the dark web to see if your number's out there. Um, all the companies we're seeing popping up 
um, protecting you from the dark webs, carrying your information. I think, well, that that's going to continue, and it's it gets close to what we were talking about with the Office Depot thing in that, oh, we're just going to sell you this product without even telling you if it even matters because, well, your information might be on a message board on the clear web too. Right. So, um, so do you really need that service? I mean, it's nice marketing. Nice to have. Yeah, yeah, it's a nice marketing, and it's nice to have. Is it going to make anybody else safer from having their emails fished, or you know, no? Well, but, then how do you even know if it works? Right. As long so as someone else to compare it. Right. Um, and it's. I, I don't know that even if those products that you're talking about when it comes to like the credit monitoring agencies or anything like that, even if they do work, do we know that they're working well? Who knows? Uh, yeah, no, yeah. We, we have no idea. So who knows that maybe your information is there out on the dark web and maybe their scans just missed it. I mean, this is the, the, sure. the whack-a-mole that goes on. Um, hackers want to sell this data and law enforcement wants to try to find it. I just don't think that you're going to be able to see it on these Amazon-like marketplaces anymore. Fair enough. So researchers at Clear Sky say they uncovered the first known targeting of an Israeli organization by Lazarus Group, the infamous North Korean government-linked hackers. An email in broken Hebrew from a compromised employee account at an Israeli defense company earlier this month lifted the veil on the suspected operation. It's unclear what the attacker's goal was, but it could have been commercial or traditional espionage, according to ClearSky. North Korean dictator Kim Jong-un has set ambitious economic goals, and some cybersecurity analysts have predicted he will unleash the country's hacking capabilities to support those ends. Jen, cross another country off Lazarus Group's list right i mean yeah, they're everywhere and, and that's a that's certainly one of the top countries i think of when i think of people who are really good at um hacking and protecting data yeah um i i think that the cybersecurity analysts that predict the way this group works i mean have it pretty spot on they're going to get their money no matter what by any means necessary, as long as there are sanctions in place. So <laughs> guard your bank accounts because they're coming. I mean, <laughs> if, you, if you haven't started doing that now, I would definitely start doing it because there is apparently no bank account too hidden for Lazarus Group to go after. There's no company that they won't try to wreck if they can find a way to wreck it. Like, they're, they just don't care. And we've talked about that numerous times, and this is just another bullet point in the list of reasons showing that they don't care and you will try to be hacked if you're not guarding your stuff. Correctly. Fascinating. So if you're an avid user of the Firefox web browser and also the owner of an Android device, there's a new option for managing your passwords. Firebox Lockbox, a new app in the Google Play Store, works hand-in-hand with the user's Firefox account to track and save passwords and then make them available to other apps on an Android phone or tablet. There's no extra setup necessary, according to Mozilla, the organization that maintains Firefox. By contrast, a classic password manager like LastPass or 1Password exists in its own ecosystem, requiring users to fill it up with information by hand or through features like browser extensions. This sounds like a good idea. Yeah. How about we have some late-night commercials for this instead right? of my PC health check or military-grade VPNs or something like that. I mean, this is a, a good idea. Hey, it's a free password manager. You can't go wrong with this. So for everybody that does have consumers that aren't necessarily technically literate, if you have some mom and dads or some grandmas and grandpas out there yeah. that love their Android phones and actually use all of the services by which they have a password and they don't necessarily get how two-factor or SMS works, give them this. It's free. There's there's no money, and it's a way for them to protect their stuff. So great idea, good on uh, Mozilla. And, yeah, back to what I said. Let, let's get some commercials going for this instead of Absolutely. my pchealthcheck.net. Please give us $60 a month to not fix your computer. Yeah. <laughs> so in funding news, uh, the Omidar Network, an investment firm created by eBay and First Look Media founder Pierre Omidar, invested $2 million in Baltimore-based Terbium Labs. The announcement comes amid intensifying competition among dark web vendors like Recorded Future, Digital Shadows, and Flashpoint. Uh, 
Emily Wilson, the vice president of research at Turbian, told us a lot of these companies will buy stolen data and then go to clients and say, look, we found your data. Here's why you should be concerned. Uh, if you're creating another place where this information could be exposed or if you're contributing to the criminal economy and then using that as bait, even in a small way, that goes against the broader service here, which is creating a more secure world. Um, interesting uh, investment, interesting quote, especially with what we were just talking about with the way that these dark web companies work. So, Jen, let's break this down. Uh, I want to ask you a, a question. Have you ever dealt with a venture capitalist or an investor that has some, like, backing or, or celebrity, so to speak, when it comes to a company invest? And what is that like? Like, a Pierre Amador is not like Mark Cuban or anything like that. But Pierre Amador carries some weight based on, you know, his track record with eBay and founding The Intercept. So have you ever dealt with anything like that and whether it well, has been good? Well, I've got a co-investment with Mark Cuban. Oh, so, okay. <laughs> speaking of celebrity investments, um, yeah, I mean, I think that um, that's probably not like a super good example of someone who carries weight for um, the market because that's just not Mark Cuban's like strong point. Okay. Um, but certainly him talking about something, right, gets users um, or gets customers. So that's that's great. So this is kind of a different, um, I think Pierre is certainly more credible when it comes to technology. Okay. Um, you know, that said, as I look at this quote, I thought it was interesting um, because you know, she's taking a direct hit at, you know, all of their competitors, really. I mean, they're also a, a company that's going into the dark web and making sure that your data's not out there. Um, you know, and, and, and she's referring to basically all the predatory um, um, companies that do this, where they're like, hey, Greg, here's what I found about you. This is why you need our service. Right. The, the, the buying of data is such an interesting... Yeah like underbelly i feel like is a good word of all of these companies which are legitimate i mean i'm not making any any claims myself that that is you know uh, a quote uh from terbium so i'll leave it at yeah. that i mean look uh, this is a, a business it's a marketplace so there's going to be competition so i i get that you you want you can be fierce about it but at the same time just I, I'm really interested into digging a little bit more into, are you really buying that data? How does that help? Like, I, I, I get the point of how are you really helping people be secure? And instead of finding that data and telling somebody about it, you're, you're buying it first and then telling, like, that's... I mean, but this is, I mean, that's kind of a business model that we, you know, see over and over again with stuff. I think, I don't know if we talked to a company together or I talked to them separately, but they... Um, basically figure out oh i know where your 12 year old is because of their instagram or twitter or whatever and then go and say look i could kidnap your kid i know where they are so this is why you need our, our service and products right, right? so it's right. kind of that yeah it, it gets into that fud conversation that uh it gets messy i mean look obviously these are serious problems, so they carry some weight. But I, I, I just hate that whole like scare tactic yeah. into into selling. I would much rather have it come from a safety perspective, which I know we're talking about. You know, towing a line there, so it it's tough. But th there's just some some fud there that. I, I don't like, and unfortunately, I'm um, sorry, I, I don't know how to fix it, but I, I wish the, the marketplace acted uh, a little bit differently. So, okay, let's get to our interview with Aviv, but first, if you have been to one of our events, you know we're not your typical cybersecurity conference, so we're taking our show on the road again this year. From September 16th to 20th, we will be hosting NY Cyber Week in New York City. The week, as always, is all about big ideas, big talks, and doing something impactful for the greater good of technology. Register now to join 60-plus community events around the Big Apple, and for more information on what we have planned, check out nycyberweek.com. Okay, now we are talking with Aviv Grafi, the CEO and founder of Votero. Aviv, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much, Greg, for inviting me. So let's talk about how you came to create Votero. What in your past led you to be so passionate about this company? Great. So um, 
actually, I'm uh, I'm a graduate of the intelligence unit of uh, the Israeli Army, A200. Maybe you heard that. Uh, we, I've heard, definitely heard of 8200 before. Yeah, so uh, after my army service of uh, almost five years, I, um, I want to do something on my own. So I, s I gave some, uh, something called penetration services. I traveled the world. I, uh, I did some audits for uh, companies, organizations, and I found something very, I would say, similar among all those organizations. Okay. Um, one of the things that uh, I was doing uh, was uh, demonstrating how can I hack them. So the only thing I did actually that worked 100% of the time is to going to their website, finding for the new of the uh, open uh, opening jobs positions they have, and picking one, sending a resume, crafted resume that was weaponized actually to the HR department, saying hi, I want to apply to that position number 33. Um, I've got. Uh, I've got the reference from Philip from the finance. Uh, let me know if that's uh, relevant. And that document was sent to that HR department. On the other side, the guy or lady, their job is to open that document. In 100% of the time, they just open the document, got infected, and that's it. And after five, three, five days, when I was touring in that organization, show them, hey, you're vulnerable. And it worked once, twice. After the 10th time, I thought, how we can solve that completely? How we can change that, and I think the the journey of seeking for, for a solution for that basic problem that's actually what led me uh, uh, pioneering for Tiro. So, what exactly does your company do? Okay, so Win Votier, we invented a technology called uh, CDR, Content Disarming Reconstruction, and the idea behind it is that weapon, I would say, uh, documents are here, uh, and will be here for a long time. Mm -hmm. And it's a basic tool in, in business interaction these days. And we thought how we can change that. I mean, on one hand, the HR guy or lady had to do the, the job, right? They had to open that document. Yeah. But on the other hand, the CISO always tell them, think twice before you open a document. So what we, we invented is that once you take that document, let's say PDF, you know what is what are the good stuff in that document. So instead of looking for the bad stuff, like most of the other traditional solutions that, for example, Sandbox, Antivirus, Antimalware, um, even machine learning, they're all trying to learn from the past and predict the future. They're taking signatures, behaviors, model, and let's check if that document is malicious. We're saying, like, let's break that cat and mouse game. Let's take only the good parts, the text, images, pages from that PDF, that resume, and let's generate a safe version of that document, look and feel exactly the same. That the HR guy or lady can work with that, but the underlying bits are different. So do I just get, so I get an email, and it's got, in my case, I, I see company pitches, it's got a company pitch. Um, do I have to do anything, or do I just open it like I normally do, or? So you just open it. Double click any document you could get without the need to think twice because the document will look and feel exactly the same. Mm -hmm. The user experience will be exactly the same, but it was regenerated from scratch, leaving all the nasty, all the unknown stuff outside. So, explain why documents containing malware are so hard for traditional solutions to ID or weed out. I, I think that the problem is that resides how we solve that problem because document. Is, is a content uh, and is also a platform for doing a lot of other things. Okay. And by trying to look for those bad things and uh, that hackers can ju just generate in thousands every day, uh, this is the challenge because you need to actually fingerprint all the nasty things that hacker will think about in your documents, new macros and, l and, and malicious links and uh, structured vulnerabilities in those file formats, PDFs, Flash, remember that Flash, Adobe Flash, still, mm -hmm. still around. So all those things, actually, uh, you cannot really cope with, with the pace of the hackers that evades all kind of detection technologies, just, just fingerprinting what they know. And the hacks, hackers are faster than us, that's the truth. Can you give us some examples of what types of things are hidden in documents when I open it and something's there? Sure. So one thing, one of the most popular, I uh, would say, uh, 
threat is those uh, malicious uh, macros. So macros are macro is a feature of Microsoft Excel spreadsheet mm -hmm. that uh, automate actually it's here to ease our life to do something for example generate pivot tables stuff like that. Okay. Uh, on the same time we can do some nasty things. The problem is that Microsoft will never get rid of macros because that's actually used for productivity. We we must use that but the hackers use the same tool the same I would say feature doing those nasty stuff. For example, downloading something from the web, executing, actually acting as a malware instead of a real document. Well, what happens when I turn those macros off? Like I'm in IT or I'm in security at, you know, an enterprise and I go, okay, I understand that macros are important, but we know that the hackers love to use macros in order to take advantage of our system. So we're just going to turn macros off. Actually, that's, that's one of the approaches just disable the macros in your organization. So for some organizations it might work, uh, but for most of them, especially in the insurance and finance, they're using macros as part of their regular course of business. So it won't work. So you will start from excluding one department or two of the departments, but eventually there were the department that will get, I would say, attacked. Let's say the finance, the purchasing. They're getting invoices from, from outside. So you, they have to get, they have to enable macros but they still be attacked, so that's a problem. I say I always, they always disable stuff like that for me, and then I like call and complain, and I get it back. So <laughs> you're part of the I'm problem. Like, I'm part of the problem. I'm ground zero. <laughs> so a lot of this comes in through phishing, and I mean, if you read security news, you obviously see that most of these attacks start through phishing. Uh, what are some of the more popular phishing tactics that you tend to see, and how can technology help combat that? Sure. Actually, one of the important, uh, I would say, very interesting thing that I saw maybe three weeks ago uh, is attack um, um, actually on Votero. We got we got an email. Wow. Okay. We got nice. an email that was uh, spoofed. Um, it was it was coming from Bank of America employee, and it was it was looked very weird. I mean, there was an Excel spreadsheet attached to it, and it was it looks like legit. Uh, we've Googled the the guy's or the lady's name that sent that email, and we found that the hacker was sophisticated enough to create a LinkedIn avatar yes. of, oh, wow. of a Bank of America employee. So it, it looks legit. The signature was real. Everything was, was legit. Um, the only thing that actually uh, was a sign of uh, alarm uh, is, is that, that uh, we flagged that as a suspicious macro in it. Okay. So that's, that's what actually flagged that. Um, so um, we alerted, and I, I got alerted as well, that this is a suspicious email, and it was stopped. But this is indeed a problem. The hacks, the, the hacks are doing actually sophisticated things like uh, um, not just say, sending plain text email, not just saying, sending invoice, fake invoice, actually uh, mimicking the real user behavior. That's the problem with the phishing. It would look and feel exactly like the real thing. Uh, and, and that's why we think that the detection-based ap approach, it has its limitation. So awareness is great, detection is great, but maybe nine, 95%, the 5% or the even 99%, the 1% is the 1% that actually can, can lead to a catastrophic event. So that's why we think that in a prevention-like approach, like materials or like others in the market, there are other approaches, uh, it will be actually the future of the protection from those kind of attacks because you cannot interrupt the business. Like you said, if, some, if the IT will block macros, will disable some features, the CISA or the IT guys, uh, they can be easily, they're hateable today. And in my view, we should let the user work. We should not interrupt the business process. So the IT guy and the CISA will be loved. So, I mean, let's be honest, I would have clicked on that link, right, or that email. So, so your solution obviously is for enterprises, but as an individual, if I'm opening up my Gmail, like what, how can I protect myself better? So I think that uh, for, uh, for consumer, maybe um, they are at risk, or, I mean, uh, but I think that most of the question you should ask yourself is whether you expected that email, and, um, and, and what they're asking for you to do. I mean, link for credentials, that's something 
fishy. Uh, a document with, with an Excel document where you haven't expected an Excel, that's a problem. So you should be aware if you're not deploying any any prevention-based solutions, so you're deploying only detection, you should be very aware of what you click off. You need to think twice. That's that's the sad reality. So talking about the files that you're seeing malware embedded in, is there any sort of file that you know ranks one above the other? Like, do you see PDFs carrying more malware than a Word document or an Excel spreadsheet, or is there some other type of file that you know you see a lot that hackers tend to rely on when it comes to embedding malware and using it as a phishing lure? So definitely on the last, I would say maybe three, four, five years ago, we saw a lot of uh, uh, Adobe Flash. We saw a lot of uh, uh, executable like uh, SCR file, like screensavers. Uh, that was very popular, uh, but the defense, uh, I would say, uh, traditional system became very, I would say, effective in that manner. Uh, the what we see on the last couple of years is a lot of Microsoft Office files, a lot of uh, Excel spreadsheet and Word document with macro enabled. That's very, very easy to produce, and very easy to uh, to evade anything that uh, out there. Uh, another trend is a PDF with links, embedded links, saying that. Uh, say uh, embedding a, a blurry image saying if you want to read that image click here uh, mm -hmm. luring, the, luring the victim to click on that li on, on embedded link and going out so the links the phishing links went from the body of the email into documents because most of the solutions are not scanning the actual documents they're still scanning the body of the, the emails wow, okay so that's I would say definitely a trend that we see with Microsoft's move to make it more mobile friendly when it comes to these products, with Word, Excel, I mean, you can use them obviously on your laptop and your desktop, but you can use them on your phone, you can use them on an iPad. Are you starting to see hackers evolve in that regard where they're sending it hoping that uh, their targets open it on their phone and they can get into their phone more than they want to get into their enterprise system? Are you seeing hackers move that way at all? So uh, I'm not seeing a significant trend uh, using Microsoft Office files on, on, on phones. Uh, I can definitely see a trend with links, uh, malicious link via WhatsApp or Slack. Uh, this is actually something that we do see. Uh, Slack uh, become more and more popular and organization actually opening uh, external consultant account and, and actually contacts to interact with their employees. And actually that goes underneath or, or, or above any security measure that they currently have in the organization. Uh, so those kind of collaboration platforms uh, is more relevant to, uh, to the uh, mobile like box or Dropbox on, on the phone and not necessarily Office. So we ask a random question to close out these interviews. So what product would you seriously stockpile if you found out they weren't going to sell it anymore? I like my Echo sneakers shoes, but uh, that's me. <laughs> no, that's that's totally fine. Why do you like the sneakers so much? Uh, I like the uh, my Echo sneakers. Actually, I can find only only here in the states. So when I come here, I, I oh, so you stock up on them yeah, already? Yeah. 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 No shopping spree. I mean, I, I don't want to yeah. keep you anymore. Get out there and get all those sneakers. <laughs> I don't think they're going off the market, but you can never, you know. Yeah, you my, wife, know. my wife tell me every, each time I'm coming from the states with two pair of new shoes. Say, what's happened? You can never know whether to stop selling them. So I'm bringing. Two oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Great, great. Uh, we really appreciate you hopping aboard with us, and hopefully we'll talk to you soon. Thank, Thank you. you. Very, Thank you very much, guys. All right, that's it for this week. Thanks for listening, and we will be back next week to talk about it all again. Stay curious.